drops it and then I send it to you, I won't close my browser. We're yeah, we're, we're all set. So we're, uh, we're up and running now. So thanks everyone for uh, tuning in to Partner Up, the Partnerships Podcast. And uh, today we're joined by uh, a very special guest, someone I've known for the past couple of years, uh, has given me some uh, very appropriate advice here or there. Um, so Bobby Napletonia, I got it right? Yeah, you got it I right. got it right. I, I think I've butchered That's that rare. in the past. Um, and uh, before we hop in, just want to remind everyone, this episode is sponsored by Crossbeam. Crossbeam is a partner ecosystem platform that acts as a data escrow service that finds overlapping customers and prospects with your partners while keeping the rest of your data private and secure. So you can sign up for free at crossbeam.com. Kevin's a customer and uh, I'm currently in a pilot right now. So uh, thanks and a shout out to Crossbeam. But uh, Bobby, appreciate you coming here. Um, so for those of you- yeah, it would be here without Crossbeam, right? <laughs> well, this whole thing's a big partner stuff. Like I reached out to Kevin to be like, hey, do you want to be my first guest? And then Kevin's like, well, why don't we do it together? So we partnered up and then reached out to Crossbeam and it was like, hey, why don't we partner up on the sponsorship? And uh, that's that's BD, right? That's what we're going to be talking about yeah. today. Um so Bobby, you've, um, you've, you've seen a lot of different stories. You know, you've built channel and alliances at BEA, you've done it at Salesforce, you've been CRO, you've sold companies, but I, I want you to take me back to April of 2015, April of 2015, you just joined Salesforce, you know, they'd, they'd gone public just recently, right? Yeah. So 15 or oh, 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 five, sorry. 2005. Yeah, I was going to say, wait, you made me think where I was next. Sorry. 2000, 2005, uh, Salesforce has just gone public, uh, really in the same calendar year. Right. And yeah. you, you had two major tasks. You had the app exchange task and then you had building salesforce.com practices. And I feel like we could have many episodes just on the app exchange, but what I, what I wanted to dive into was, you know, you had these conversations with Benioff and the team around building salesforce.com practices. Obviously that was successful. Look at how many there are today. How did you do it? Yeah. First of all, it's a great question. And um, you could unpack that for days and eventually maybe we'll have a, like a series that people would want to know and write in questions to find out about. We can go live um, with this later too. Up, so we might actually do that yeah. for the next one. We're going to have Bobby good, back good. already. I can tell. Hey. Good. I I, uh, I landed at BEA. We had a startup in 2001, which would have been one of the first downturns I lived through. That was clearly one of the worst in, in my 32 years doing this. And uh, my, my sponsor at BEA, because they were going to buy my company at that time, said, hey, you, we're not going to buy you, but I'd like to introduce my friend, Mark Benioff. And my wife's like, look, you just came off startups. We're starting a family. Take the real job. Take a real role. And so I passed and Mark and I remained friends. And two and a half years later, he called me and said, look, your name keeps coming up. Let's do a deal. And four months later, I started. And it was uh, much more of a task than I ever thought, you know, uh, to your point. For, let's just take the app exchange because that was uh, the, there's two components. And the first was we had a business and we had to figure out who could be these people to do it. And when you look at any big paradigm shift, which we haven't had many of that magnitude in, uh, in, in since we've been here, the most recent would be Clicks No Code, which really then will disrupt an ecosystem, which is these no code platforms. But you're taking what I would say is uh, the essence of a channel model, which is their lifeblood. How do they make money and grow dependencies so that their families don't eat, don't go on vacation unless they take and sell your stuff and make people successful with it at the time? And so we had a lot of names you and I never heard of. Blue Wolf, Red Sky, Purple Moon. Like you're gonna, I thought, what did I get myself into? But these were really great people that believed in the religion Mark was preaching. And so we had two choices, make the small ones get bigger 
which you can only grow so fast, or get the big ones to pay attention to us. And for them, I was a heretic, a lunatic, and a lot of dirty words because <laughs> no software means, oh, I'm serious, no software means no services means no ecosystem. And we turned it around and we thought, you know, there's no money in installing hardware and software. We could do that all for you. And so we proved, but it wasn't an easy task. We, we literally picked one SI, um, Accenture, and we went after and we stole three of their customers. And these were diamond customers, which means it's more than $50 million a year, which is big for a customer. When you say stole, Bobby, I have to ask, I, do you mean stolen that you landed them absent Accenture? Or do you mean stolen yep. that you we, we, landed them with another Salesforce partner? SI. We landed with another. We took in Blue Wolf. Eric Baird will tell you the story. We had a lot of great times together. And we knocked down three of their diamond accounts. And then, mm. um, uh, uh, yeah, so we, we wedged ourselves into the go, and then we set up a meeting with, uh, with Benioff and a guy named Bill Green at the time, who was their CEO. And we said, this is going to happen every day until you uh, come and join <laughs> and work with us. And, <laughs> that's a true story. And we had already worked in the background. Don't think it was like a flip of a coin. And we had uh, Sadiq Raj, who still runs the cloud practice, was the first guy in, and the name Eric Gist. Eric and I were just communicating last week. He's fishing in Alaska right now, speaking Amazing. of Alaska, Kevin. Yeah. And, um, and we, we really build out. Um, but here's the dirty secret. Every SI needs qualifications to go into account. So we took a hundred of their bodies at cost. We sprinkled them across all these projects. And the next thing you know, Accenture had a logo slide. Now, those were our logos that they had people work on. And those people might have done some admin work, some screen scrubbing work. But we could go in front of an Accenture partner who owns the account and say, here's our logo list. And then when you show Citibank, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, whoa, those are all our accounts. How did you do? Where did you get it? Well, we had their people subbed our services group, and that was the that was the genesis and the core. What became our first global SI uh, ecosystem partner, which uh, God, I could go on and on. I remember selling their first million dollar sponsorship to Dreamforce. Talk about a sale, and they weren't allowed to show anything but the Tiger Woods golf thing, so that people could come meet them. And um, so we methodically got them what they needed to be successful so that they too could go in front of their client partners that then would give them the uh, assurance that when they took it to the customer, they had the qualifications and capabilities to make it work. No one wants to be first and no one wants to be last. So whenever you, you talked about you, bringing people in, they, you had 100 people that were like dedicated to your accounts. Were you embedding this, their services components, their client services into your accounts under what kind of program or deal? Great question. So we did a at cost deal to get the hundred bodies actually it's below cost. Cause that was their investment to, to learn the cloud. How'd you get that, that investment? Allowed a, we had Benioff sit with Bill Green and say, look, if you don't do this, we're going to keep doing this all day long. Nobody wants to have their customers taken away from a no name. And there was a big paradigm shift at that time. You have to remember there were so many failed Siebel projects and most of them had actually been done by Accenture. And whether it was right or wrong or what was going on, and we were going after those customers because we knew, it, look, perfect storm. When's the last time a VP of sale had a budget? How about like never? That that person was the first time enterprise software was ever sold to someone other than an enterprise user. And that's when we called on a person that had the problem. They could go to their boss and say, you're beating me up for a forecast. If you give me this tool, I'm going to get it right. And of course, therefore, you started on, we called it the bookends, high tech and financial services, fast adopters, laggards, and cheap. And once you get those pillars, you fill in the middle and the rest of the industry start collapsing. And that was our, our thesis and it truly uh, played out. So we get these bodies for the next year, we sprinkle them. We had no training. 
I just talked to Scott Eamon, who built our training just last week, and uh, he did dumpster diving to create these materials. And we took three of our regional SIs. It was Blue Wolf, Model Metrics, and Estadia, and we built training. And that was because you asked the question. Mark called me going, fire all the partners. They're screwing up our projects. We've never trained them. What would they know how to do? There's no... There's no authorization, certification, compliance. They're just like, let's run amok. So we quickly put an authorization and we put together these training programs and tiering of levelings that you could actually grow into. And um, we allowed the three partners that helped build it to co-revenue share with us. The one thing that you, you'll hear me always say is the only way you get partners to love you is to share the money, share the wealth, and then you're in it together. And so we then had them build it. We cross-licensed the IP. So now they could go sell the software and just pay me a royal, sell the training and just pay me a royalty for every button seat. And what we did kind of like Crossbeam, we went and told everyone you need training. And then these three regional partners was the beginning of our ATCs, authorized training centers. And uh, and that was built out. And the, the rest of the training was kind of, kind of history in terms of during my tenure that we grew there. But that allowed us to then say to any SI, here's your learning paths. Here's how you can get brought up to speed. And then ultimately, those credentials, as you see today, are probably more important than being a Microsoft CNE or a Cisco, blah, 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 because while those are important, those aren't the forward-facing skills that we look at. I'm sure every salesperson that you hire at Drift is Salesforce required, like you have now to use it, right? Mm-hmm. Just like for uh, you'd go, you, 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 for an engineer, you'd go, you have to know these languages, Python, JavaScript, whatever. Bobby, what was your, on, on day one, what was your goal? And did that mission change over time? And, and how long did it take you to get to this, um, what you considered success? Yeah, day one was figure it out, uh, which was somewhat of a daunting task. This is a good question. Uh, day one, week one, turned out to be a crazy week. My father passed away that week. And I remember going into Jim Steele's office and he looked at me, he's like, what's wrong? I go, man, I just need a hug. And he did. And Jim's still my friend today. And uh, we got through that week and we exited my day one first week with going, all right, now I got to get my act together. And these are the things that we're going to focus on. And it was, how do we become relevant? Period. And that relevancy started with an ecosystem that could start creeping up so we didn't have to do all the heavy lifting ourselves. And then how do we take our regional SIs and either help them get bigger, um, in which case we did. We started methodically calculating with them, hey, we're hiring salespeople to call in Texas. Would you like to open an office in Texas? If not, I'm going to go find someone that will. Well, the good news is they'd say yes. Very rarely did they say no. So we could... Uh, have calculated growth so we didn't oversaturate the ecosystem too early, yet we could trust those certain group of partners. And I brought a gentleman that worked with me at uh, three different cus uh, companies, Rob Brewster, and Rob came and joined me, and he owned that regional mm -hmm. SI, which was truly the lifeblood, to be honest. It wasn't for three years that the global SIs really started picking up and getting the knack of it. And that was when Force.com came into play in the platform and what, what, what they could really do in that space. So we were set out, become relevant, um, and that was for the SI component. We really quickly put together training, how we were going to recruit them, what we were going to do. And now this is a very important part. When you think of the pyramid, meaning the big, big, big customers up top and the long tail at the bottom, could you imagine 20 years ago calling and saying, hey, I'd like to sell you a service in the cloud from California to Florida? They go, are you crazy? So we then looked and said, how will we have... SI partners in each of the states and the cities that we want to go after so that we could have them go meet in person. 
They set up the demo. Salesperson called from Salesforce. They were in the office. So it was like an, a true extension of, uh, of our reach. And they had local legs, we called it, with a uh, tie back to corporate. So it was a best of a tethered world. So we could also keep eye on who was doing what work. And then we ended up putting in processes that allowed us to say, you're really going to be up and running in 30 days. And these were the methodologies. And these were canned packages that you could go in and do so that for t- I could say, Jared, for 10K, I'm going to come in and get you set up. And this is what you're going to be delivered. And that way you didn't have scope creep. There was no ambiguity. So we truly packaged these quick start guides. And then we were very prescriptive. So this is a really interesting topic to a lot of channel uh, leaders. It's like, to what degree do you help your partners craft their business around your business? What I mean by that is kind of like, it's a bunch of ways of going about it. Productizing a service. Most agencies, consultants, SIs, whatever. I mean, I've always said it's fancy ways of billing for time right? So you can do points, you can do packages, you can do retainers. But when oftentimes, if you have a right service, that's really helping one of your partner's customers, and they see the value, they're like, yeah, let's do this. This is great. Well, how does my client services team, right, actually deliver this solution? Were you coming up with predetermined packages where it was completely scoped out that they then you were then training, and they were selling against in the field? Yes. Yes. What we had to do was come up with a repeatable pattern model. Otherwise, to the point, everyone got to do what they want because they were never trained. Well, while it was a relatively easy tool and and uh, uh, to use, there were different ways you could go about achieving the end result. And so we thought the only way to do that was to be very prescriptive. Like a line dance. If everybody's not doing the line dance the same way, it looks pretty funny. But when everyone does it in unison, you go, wow, that's pretty remarkable. Like the haka, right? if you've ever seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's that? Yeah, that that's New Zealand really all blacks. Yeah. yeah, and so so our goal was to create a repeatable model. We also lived off. We came off the back of the years where the large enterprise apps had gone stir crazy with system integration work, and that was probably one of the real first times that we you had people had consultant fatigue, and they were just done paying the millions of dollars for shelfware. And that did that also our model came in, which is if you don't get use out of it in the subscription space, you're not going to renew. And so it was important for adoption. And then we knew what it would take for you to to, uh, to gain adoption. And then ultimately, you, you ask a question, we'll pack it. When you were a system integrator, all you sold were services and people. And we were the first company to allow you to blend and blur that where you could create your own IP that was repeatable. Now, this is important. The reason system integrators could never do their own IP, building software requires an entire company to think of that methodology. And that is release cycles, support models, engagement models. When you're a services company, you're screw, glue, and go. And and so we really had to change management, the SIs themselves, to understand that this is way, way different. It's about adoption training, not going in and configuring is your database tables correct and are you doing it? Like, there's no value in that, um, especially now today. But, but back then, we got to prove that for the first time. And so you had uh, system integrators that knew a vertical or a space, and then they would start prepackaging it. And so Blue Wolf, we went after the media space. It was ripe. And we created media packages and you could go in and have Salesforce for media. And then we ended up, it became a big vertical for us. Um, And so you allowed them to have residual revenue streams that they never had before, unless they sold a managed services contract, which at that time, just the big guys did. So you said Salesforce for media. 
did you prioritize these relationships based on verticals then in terms of like, let's, let's extend this conversation out of you and your team working just with the channel ecosystem. But, you know, it's a lot of companies start to actually get some traction with channel. The head of ops, sales ops starts looking in and going, Hey, let's do our forecast planning for next year. Wait, how is partner impacting that model? And then a lot of that times that's broken down by geo, right? Region or territory or vertical. Did you start to how did you start to work with the internal team around like, you know, Salesforce for media? Like how does our partners impact Great question. That? It was product led and product was really product marketing was really strong on positioning, as you know, I mean, we did a really good job at that. And we started looking at what verticals we could be ripened and hence high tech's our backyard, early adopters of technology. We know who they are. They probably had SIBO and had already been struggling. What were the things we could go in and rescue them? And sometimes when we rescued them, I remember the day we threw a party in Symantec and their CEO called ours and gone, hey, look, we don't operate like this. And we go, the teams did it. Your team said, we're celebrating, we're ripping out. We had nothing to do with it. We just showed up at the party and provided the cake. <laughs> For ripping out Siebel? Yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 to your point, then then it was financial services. And what made us go after financial services was that compliance came. And if you remember, Sarbanes-Oxley required that you couldn't have that black book. Um, if you were at the time, your financial advisor would take your book with his book with all of our names and information and he'd get on the train to go home and he might leave it there. And they realized that people were taking this act, act was big and I, you had everyone act on my system. So it was all dispersed and fragmented and there was no compliance. And so they shut it down and we went after Merrill Lynch to be the first financial advisor platform to go after because they had 25,000 and a partner brought us that deal. John Oric from Okiri Systems. And, uh, uh, I remembered the day we called him to say, hey, we have a publisher's house clearing check for you. And it was a $543,000. It's 10% of the $5 million deal. And we were all happy because I get to show every other partner, guess what? You too can get half million dollar checks from us. And um, he, he did, did, you, did you actually build, like, did you print the big check? Oh, for sure. Oh, oh I yeah, love you that. Know, we were theatrical. Love oh, it. Yeah, That's sure. John, John and I are friends now still to today. He's retired, living in the Philippines, sold his company f- to Fujitsu, and the rest is history. Cool. Uh, so a lot of our listeners are working on SMB and, and mid-market software, myself included. Is this channel relevant uh, only to the enterprise, or should SMB mid-market software uh, be looking at GSIs and this particular channel that that you found success in. Yeah, so I would I would argue that that was just one of the channels that we went through. We went after the SMB channel in a big way. That's more than half of uh, Salesforce customers for the longest time, and so it was a different partner type. Um, I actually think there are channels for everything, and you have to dissect who you'd go to. One of the ones that I've respected uh, out of all of them is the Intuit channel with CPAs. Yeah. 28,000 CPAs tell you what software you should use. Okay, guess what? None of us are tax accounts. We're going to go, we'll use QuickBooks. And all of a sudden, they can enter their trusted advisor. And I always thought that was probably the most undertapped channel. Because if I can trust you with my books, I could probably trust you with just about anything. Um, and and so I think, you know, back to a channel for everything, you have to define What's in it for them? Uh, how's it a win-win? And can you actually enable them to be successful? 
So Salesforce was ready to go public uh, when they hired you and when they kind of, um, uh, you know, invested in these channels. Um, is that the right? I mean, what at what stage should a company be thinking about making these big investments in channel? Yeah, that's a great question. So they had channel partners that were smaller regional SIs way before they went public. Yeah. Um, you have to remember, we entered at a point in time where we were doing something so new that you, no one would have done it regardless. And so there was a lot of convincing. We could have never gone after the big guys at the time, regardless of public. If we did have a billion in cash, it wouldn't have mattered because there had been no one that pioneered that way. I used to tell people, we were like, you hope you don't get one more arrow in your back being that far ahead on the frontier. And look, think about the companies that detested us at the time. Small companies, Oracle, Microsoft, SAP. I mean, do I need to keep going down the list? Adobe. I joke today, someone asked me this question. If you knew what you knew and, and you were Larry Ellison, what would you have done that would have crippled Salesforce? At a point in time, I would have bought all their system integrators, which for all those names I gave you, I could afford to spend $50 million to buy them all, and we would have been crippled mm-hmm. immediately. And that could have been the downward spiral. But no one knew that that was our secret weapon that propelled us. And today, as you guys probably know, it's going to be a trillion-dollar ecosystem, which I'm pretty proud of, given that um, it hadn't even existed. That's w- part of the listeners that I hope we continue to attract for this is not just the the partnerships leaders, but the actual executives, because like that's an insight that like a head of partnerships at a company like Salesforce might have, like our biggest weakness, which should be shared at the executive level. But oftentimes the executives, I feel like there's this misalignment or this uh, second class citizen vibe of like their partner programs, their channel ecosystem, et cetera. The, the great companies embrace it, the Salesforces, the HubSpots, the Intuits. But how do you get those insights up to the executives and, and turn an executive that's like, we have a partner channel, we have a partner ecosystem into really being in that advocate, that frontline person that is out there really making it happen? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, because there's you all salespeople always point to somebody to making their deal go slower or go sideways or get lost. And it's very easy to say, oh, those channel people did it. Look what they did to my deal, yada, yada, yada. And so that happened for us, of course. And the gentleman that ran the uh, uh, mid market business, Frank Van Vienendal, I remember we'd have a lot of uh, conversations. And Frank and I are still good friends today. And uh, uh, it was, you have to prove what you're doing. Well, his team knew they would never win those deals without the system integrators going locally in Florida, Massachusetts, New York, like Chicago, pick a city. But we quickly turned it into how do we make the reward system even better? And that's when we amped up the referral program. And our referral program was truly the cornerstone of what most people base this off today. And so we built a poor man's reseller program. Um, I, I grew up in the reseller world and distribution world, so that was not foreign. And the because you could imagine selling a service is not easy unless you've built it to be resold by somebody else. Right. And so, right. And so what we said is just give us the leads. And then we started attracting and measuring the leads and the, the ecosystem, that SI ecosystem had the highest quality leads, fastest close rates, and were three times bigger in most segments, sometimes up to five times bigger initial deal than any marketing lead. Now, why is that? Why is that? 
Yeah, so there's a bunch there's a bunch of reasons because I've seen I've seen similar stats on ours, right? Like 2x close rate, 2.5x, you know, MRR win rate. Um, whenever yep. you're working with an alliance or a channel partner. Um really to me, the answer is trust. It's trust. Like local that that would be the answer. Look, everything I would in this industry is about trust. Trust, local relationship, and they're maturing the deal before they bring it to you. Like marketing brings you a deal that's a suspect. A partner brings you a deal that's qualified because they're not going to spend their cycles investing any of their cycles unless they think that they can actually win it. So in most cases, they were serving up deals that would close in uh, a week, eight days, nine days. And I remember George, who and I always would talk about it, looking at the metrics and, okay, I just need more of that. Well, you need more partners because it's a theory of they can only do so much. Because those partners couldn't go source more deals because they were busy delivering the ones they just sourced. And they weren't big enough to continue sourcing. So you either had this organic growth or you had to hire more partners. And then you had to train them and manage them and hold them accountable, care, love, and feeding. I have to I have to go deeper on that because you just went down another rabbit hole. So you say you have to go hire more partners. I want to talk about the model for hiring. There's a bunch of different titles, like partner sales managers, channel account managers, whatever they are. And like so you say, hey, we have to go hire more partners. Who's responsible for partner recruitment? What does that role look like and how do you plan it? It's a really good question. So by this time, it would probably have been in after my first year. So we were able to do some modeling. So we would say, look, last year, let's just take, I don't remember, and I could think for a moment. Let's say 20% of our business had been brought to us by partners. What does that, you have to remember, we're a rocket ship. Yeah, so yeah. how do I get to grow that along with it? So we then start, Rob would sit down with the, the groups and understand, where are you hiring salespeople so that I can go look to recruit? And by the way, we tried to recruit traditional partners and it was way too early. They weren't getting it. They tried the methodologies. They just, it didn't work for them. Traditional partners so we meaning? Failed. Um, VARs, oh, VARs, people that gotcha. had been local VARs, tra- tra- traditional uh, uh, industry partners. And it was, the, the just didn't get it. And it was early. They, maybe they shouldn't have gotten it. And, and, and also they couldn't make enough money just to live on us. And this is where the app exchange came into play. Real quick, before we uh, jump over, you ask one question. So when we looked at these verticals, pharma was one we went after. Really quickly, we realized we're not going to succeed in pharma. Peter Gassner was at our company. We spun Peter out and Viva Systems was born. They've been around. Yeah, they, they're doing quite well. Yeah. We, we, gave, we gave up pharma because of offline signature and all of the things that are requirements from compliance, the word that you mentioned that we weren't ready for yet. And um, the rest is history. They own pharma. So when it comes to building those roles, then you're saying, okay, we're going to look at, you know, territory planning, but let's go one layer deeper and beyond that for like capacity planning. So like, did you have any magic rules? Like I remember, uh, I'm sure you've heard this, the Benioff number in terms of calling a forecast, right? Like what was that magic number? It's like the number of reps times whatever. It's $2 million ahead. It's $2 million ahead. You get a bell curve. You want to be a billion dollar company. You need 600 reps, 70% will hit hundred percent. Like, yeah, it's, it's a true methodology. Right. Right. So what's that, the, the Benny offer, dare I say, you know, the Bobby number for like channel, like how do you start to understand how many channel account managers, partner sales managers do I need to have based on that headcount? So I think you're really looking at it the wrong way. Don't think of it as a one-to-one, which the scale of an ecosystem is one-to-many. And that's where we spent a lot of time on the enablement and then the tools. And um, we, uh, 
I was customer zero for PRM for us. And so Eli Cohen built it out. And what we built was if you, Bobby, have to build this infinitely scalable ecosystem for partners, we don't even know the types of partners that would exist, what it would look like. And that allowed us to build a, a PRM product that could scale and be multilingual and go global. And so we, we, we drank our own champagne. And that allowed us to say, hey, what you might end up doing is just uh, having one person responsible for four states. And in those four states, their goal was have capacity to deliver 100,000 seats across 200 customers. Well, now you can do the math, you know how long it takes, and it would allow you to sort of say, can I have an equilibrium? If you didn't have the ecosystem, you'd have to forecast this on your direct services side because you'd have to actually say, I need headcount to roll out the product. And so it was an easy model to say, uh, you know, six to eight weeks for a deployment. What does it look like? How many partners do we need? Um, you, depending on the product and the market, you can never have enough. And that was sort of the situation that we were in, that we were so horizontal of an app, hence the media comments, we could pick up subject matter expert SIs that, uh, that had domain expertise and talk tracks that we of course didn't have not, not selling into those verticals. And, um, then we would hunt for the partners that would go into those verticals that were locally that could give us that, um, it's kind of like hyper-localization. Right, right. And you mentioned services as well. So like you were kind of forecasting services required based on what was going to happen there. Were Salesforce reps selling services at that time? They were. This was a big rub. They were paid on. And this was the, the, the small services partner at the time would come crying to me. I'm competing against you. You want me to invest? You want me to give you my wife and my kids and my family and let you give me nothing and your salespeople? And so- uh, so how'd you get over it? It was a it was a battle royale internal. Look, you either can have uh, Dean Robeson and who ran services for the mid market accounts build an army, which I was fine with, and he knew he couldn't. And so uh, Dean took one of his great lieutenants and paired him with Rob on my team, and together they actually went and said, "What do we need by territories?" And then we could sell expert services. Who we don't want to sell the grunt work. You want to sell the expert services, and that allowed us to even charge more and become the definitive experts because we should be for our product. Um, and were, and and were those I distributed would, to partners then? When you say expert services, were those partner-led implementations? Oh yeah. So they were experts, oh, and then you led. outsourced it. If they needed help, we'd par- we'd parachute in and help them. And you took a cut off that. Uh, well, we charged for the people to go in to do the work they did, but it was at a reduced amount. It was really about success of the end right. user, the customer that, you know, as, we, as Mark calls them today, the, uh, the, the shareholder, the stakeholder. Yeah. Right? That it's not even a customer. We're all, yeah, that language. We're all that, <laughs> this, this, this decade's language. Well, I don't know. I mean, there was the Ohana promise. There was the 90 days. This is, you know, topical. And then we had to, uh, recalibrate Salesforce's, uh, workforce to accommodate, you know, more global uh, I don't know how they phrased it. It was very political, but they just had that big round of layoffs too. Um, after a killer Q2, mind you. But uh, yeah, well, I'm not an expert to comment on that. Yeah, I don't who know knows? if I would call it big. Yeah. Well, and I also would say if you go and you uh, uh, purchase a bunch of companies, your digestion happens over a period of time. And at some point in time, you've got to pass through the digestion. And unfortunately, sometimes it is people. Yeah. I'd, well, I when you're doing all this experimenting and, and building this channel out, what did you get wrong, uh, Bobby? Like what, uh, what was something that you learned that um, was a misstep perhaps? Yeah, nothing. 
No. Uh, <laughs> I was question. like, is he going to actually answer that? Oh, what are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did we get wrong? Early on, we probably didn't have the most fluid communications internally, which is why we end up having uh, uh, embedding the my team into the sales teams. So that way, like back to Rob's team, he would go to their meetings to understand what their needs were so that they saw him as an asset, not those partner people slowing my deals down, taking my business, blah, blah, blah. But I couldn't close that without them. And then what we did was, because you always had that rep we just talked about. Then we had the six reps who hit quota go, I could not have done that without his help and the help of the partners. And I want to thank you for sending me to club. And they would go like the like the announcement that you see when you win an award. Thanks, mom, dad, da, da, da. Thank you. And they'd name the partners. And then everyone would be like, don't you want to be like that? So we created poster children because we all want to emulate success as opposed to try to create how it could be replicated. That's been such a big learning for me in the past year is there's particular reps on our team uh, today that were enemies of channel. I mean, ardent enemies of channel. And uh, there's been some deals closed in the past couple months where in the Slack, because everything's public now, which is, I think it's such a missed opportunity. You know, the deal closes and then without me asking or the partner rep or the manager, hey, I just want to give a shout out to the partner rep this for getting me into this account, such a massive value add, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that was the guy that was, you, you know, going to die on his horse saying how bad channel partners were. So you, you really do have to inculcate that culture. You have to infiltrate. And, you know, you asked the question that we didn't, when, when did we get, when did we know we showed up on the stage? It was probably my uh, eighth or ninth quarter there. And we were doing our V2 mom and you had uh, three, 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 uh, three values. And I fought, I fought hard. Uh, one of the values was partner success. And when it made that and the entire company heard Mark say it's partner success. And if Bobby comes to me and I hear something otherwise, you'll have to answer to me. And I thought, God, Mana from heaven, this is unbelievable. That was the super green light that uh, that really did it. That's, that's so a North Star that, every, that everyone could strive for is like how to get that executive alignment. Maybe let's go down one layer beneath that. Um, what I've found is that, you know, the sales leadership that the VPs of sales across segments or territories, what they tend to care about is the social proof from their reps, right? Is it that same answer? Like it's probably different from an executive, like a C level, but that VP of sales and that director of sales or the regional manager, it's all about what their team is doing in the field and their successes that they're having being surfaced back to them. Yeah. So I think to your point, it uh, leadership plays a role regardless of level of leadership. And I think that to your same point, we had a couple RVPs that we made poster children of, and they became our assets amongst their peers that we didn't have to be that uh, that that group. And, and also, by the way, data doesn't lie. When we show you the groups that engage partners that had higher close rates and hit their numbers, everyone's like, we need more, more cowbell. We need more partner belt. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Whenever you're now, most of most of these scenarios, though, you're you're we're talking about bolting on a partner ecosystem, and I think that comes when you start a company not knowing where you want to go, and you stumble into it. If you say I want ubiquity, 
and you say the only way I get ubiquity is if I've got uh, religion. Religion's ubiquitous, I would say, depending on in terms of where you go. They got these disciples, and within that infrastructure of disciples, you have a hierarchy of people that carry and do those roles. And so this ecosystem is much like that. So if you get religion in a company and you say, I want to be 99% of the market, which I've been fortunate enough once or twice in my career that we've had that, you only get that through an ecosystem. And you only get that when the only way that you can be successful to go to market is that channel. And then you augment it through direct sales. The problem with technology is no one's willing to take a new bet, especially those partners that you have to go in direct and you have to carry all the water. And then you don't want people to keep drinking the water you carried up the hill. So if you go into it, designing your technology, what you want to build and how you want to go after it, knowing you want ubiquity, you will have a channel friendly model internally to begin with. Whenever you talk about building that, you know, buy-in at the, you know, RVP level and having their, you know, having their, the, the, the poster children, so to speak, and you're, you're working with operations to create kind of like that go-to-market plan where partners involved in it. There's, there's two really interesting words that it's, it's a funny, the people that have never interacted with channel, they start to, they start to like attach to everything. Was that sourced or influenced? Was that sourced or influenced? Tell me how you started to work through that and define, you know, source versus influence. Well, this is a really good question. And it, uh, there were, there were battles. Uh, there was a lot of shenanigans that we discovered along the way because <laughs> the quality of the leads that we, we were bringing in is that it was pretty easy. It was empirical. We created a, the referral program, which is net new. It wasn't in Salesforce and you create the opportunity and all of a sudden, we'd have our pipelines have these whipsaws. And we'd always go, like, what the hell's happening? How did you lose $10 million in pipe in a week? Well, somebody was taking in credit for those deals. And so quickly, it was easy to backtrack who deleted that opportunity. When did it fall off? Oh, it was that one region's group that all of a sudden, they decided that they were going to move it from a source to an influence. So we really rather quickly put together the, the process that said, you register your deal. once, And if there's nothing in Salesforce, guess what? It's a net new deal. And if you can have the empirical evidence, it came in December, what to September 2nd at 348 today, timestamp the lead coming in. Because our first leads came in via fax, by the way. Facts. The old uh, deal facts. reviews that happened on paper too, right? Facts. Yeah. yeah. And so you'd submit your uh, referral on fax and we'd accept it and, and send you a communication back. But that's the easiest way to do it. You timestamp the dollar in the door, and then the rep can never say it was theirs because it didn't exist prior to that. And then they would say, well, I, I don't, I don't want to pay on influence. I don't think so. I said, here's a preview of my note going out to our community tomorrow. And I showed it to the presidents of the group. And I go, if you don't believe in anything from, uh, from the influence, I'm going to tell them, if you didn't bring the deal, do not work on it. Do not assist. Please, let's go find a net new opportunity so you can be rewarded for that. And the response was, if you do that, we'll die. Well, you just told me there's no value in it. Well, who's going to nurture that deal in Florida or Louisiana or in Michigan? If your rep can't do it, you don't need my people to help you. Let them go do something they do well. And no one ever wants to walk along that line of fear. That if you tell them to stop influencing it, uh, something will happen. Uh, you know, look, there were those bad partners that tried to, uh, you know, I call it yellow page clippings, where they take the yellow pages and here's all my deals. So then we started tightening up. You had to have uh, a decision maker and the criteria for accepting the deal. And then once you get that fluid, it's a, it's, it's an easy process to manage. 
But you know what I would say is anyone that says it, say, good, I'm telling my partner ecosystem are no more influencing deals. If you didn't source it, don't touch it. And I guarantee you every executive will be like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, we, we see. So it. you guys out there, you should try it. <laughs> Absolutely. P- pull, pull that email up. Hey, this is the email I'm about to send. Or, hey, we have our monthly partner meeting next month. This is going to be one of the slides. Yeah. No one wants that. How would that go over it? And it's, it, it's a, look, it's an ego for the direct sales team. I'm, I can do it all myself. And look, it's unfortunate. If you have the right leadership, they'll ensure that. And by the way, when I say right leadership, two of the most successful companies in our industry are partner industries, Microsoft and Cisco. Adobe, even. Adobe, yeah. So look, let's, yeah, exactly. Let's go down that list. You have billion-dollar companies that have successful. Autodesk. I mean, let's go on and on. Massive ecosystem there. Um, Kevin, how would that go yeah. over a type form if you uh, sent that, that email out to everyone? Hey, sorry, like you, you can only work on uh, net new customers now. I mean, it wouldn't go well. Um, <laughs> wouldn't go well. But uh, we, I mean, we, we don't run into a lot of channel conflict at uh, Typeform. We, we, I built the sales team and the channel team uh, at the same time. So they were birthed at the same time. Right. Um, which was uh, very helpful to have that kind of like philosophical alignment. Um, Whenever you're, you you got to see a different version of this, like kind of contrasting HubSpot and Salesforce. So like the two of my favorites is, you know, Bobby at Salesforce and Pete over at HubSpot, right? Like I've seen a lot of commonalities here that have been interesting. Like Pete (laughs) drilled into my head, drilled. Like every time I talk to him, make your best partners famous. Right. And that, I think that what I've so, learned from you versus Pete is like, you need to make your best partners famous against other partners or like to your customers. And then what I've kind of learned from you is like, you better make them famous against your sellers because in SMB, like Intuit or HubSpot models that you kind of saw, Kevin, right? They're, they're, the direct team and the channel team were separate because the TAM was so big, right? There's yeah. hundreds of thousands of customers. But as you move into the enterprise, Right. then that starts to condense a little bit and your TAM becomes more known and you don't have this greenfield of net new accounts. Yeah. How, how have you, like you're, you're sitting here t- listening to Bobby, like how is that, how did you see that different at HubSpot? Well, I, I mean, you're exactly right. So, I mean, at, at, at Typeform, we get hundreds of leads coming in a month that are, you know, direct uh, to our sales team. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it is the same at HubSpot. I mean, they just cast a, a, a wider, uh, lower ACV net, um, and uh, they they get tons of leads. They get tons of MQLs, SQLs, um, and so uh, they, they they don't. You know, the channel conflict certainly exists at HubSpot, but they took a um, they definitely took a playbook from uh, Bobby and Salesforce. Uh, a lot of what uh, HubSpot built um, was kind of uh, ingenuity uh that they crafted themselves mixed with salesforce's playbook um i remember spending some time with darmesh and brian early on yeah Yeah. so i can see us sitting outside of salesforce at the cafe having lunch actually right now on uh god the street one parallel to market but yes and look i'm more than happy to share wisdom with anyone because if you can't share it then don't do it at least it's my philosophy and the more that we do this together the bigger it is for all of us to be successful we, then it becomes a jump ball who has the best technology right well and that, that's why we started this and that's why we're so happy to have you and, and glad that you could have joined us today bobby is that you know hey 
let's say someone gets promoted. Uh, I don't know who said this. Uh, you know, Matt Cameron, of course, who is like of my, course. my, yeah, yeah. my uh, first sales mentor. Matt, one of the things he told me was like, hey, they, an old saying at Salesforce was don't put the turkeys in alliances. And, and what really what that means is I've, I've had slides where I've, you know, what is BD? What do I do? And it's like, no, it's not where failed salespeople go to retire. But that's, that's often the, the, the perception. But here's the problem. How many sales books are there? How many marketing books are there? Can you tell our listeners where to go to find out how to be the best partnerships professional? Wow. Um, no, 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 I can't. So let's create a series together and teach them. You know, we right. haven't even touched on the app exchange and how that was the paradigm shifter for the entire industry, which maybe we'll have a subsequent call on. Oh, you know, we have that, to. that within itself. I that was talking was, to before, before we started and I was like, I have all these questions to ask. Yeah. Uh, I actually stopped Kevin from asking about the app exchange. I said, do not, that's, that's going to be another episode that we'll tease out of yeah. Bobby because that's a whole other thing, like platform revolution and like how Salesforce, like that was required reading from Sequoia to HubSpot. And there was a lot of lessons from there that, you know, the app exchange shaped the future of, um, of B2B. So, um, that, that's why we're doing this today. And we're so excited to, to you to have joined us, um, because we got to share this stuff. Right. Exactly. Look, why do it if you can't share it? Yeah. And, uh, we, we finally have the format too. So, um, we're, we're going to wrap this one up, Bobby. It's been amazing. I got to tell everyone we're going to Spotify, Apple podcasts, YouTube, we go through a lot of effort to like get these videos on YouTube and have guests join uh, on camera. So subscribe, follow, and uh, Bobby will uh, send your CEO bad emails about you if you don't rate five stars. So uh, rate five stars. And uh, before we part, um, just reminded that this episode was sponsored by Crossbeam. Crossbeam is a partner ecosystem platform that acts as a data escrow service that finds overlapping customers, prospects with your partners while keeping the rest of your data private and secure. So you can sign up for free at crossbeam.com. Bobby, any parting thoughts, wisdom that we want to drop? Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for giving me a platform to share some of this. I often think there's not a vehicle because um, for being an extrovert in life, I'm an introvert in the sharing component. And so I, 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 this is a thrill for me to participate with you guys. And, and by the way, you're the future of what we pioneered. So it's the younger generation that's going to think of models I didn't even think of yet. I was just going to say, Bobby, thank you for succeeding, because if you didn't, Jared, and I might not have jobs uh, in this field. So uh, much appreciation to you. Good. Well, next time we can talk, there's a big guy, Charlie Ill at BEA. Charlie came from IBM, which was a big partner. There's those folks that influence. And, you know, he spent a fair amount of time in terms, you know, the only thing that matters in a partnership is the trust and sacrifice. You got it. And it's a love continuum. You got to love them all. Some you love a lot. Some you love a little. <laughs> That we're going to end on that. That's too good. Thanks, everyone. Have yeah. a good night. Thank you. Bye, guys.